Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cheese and Pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to the writer Naomi Alderman. Naomi works in many fields, from video games to TV, and is probably best known for her novel, The Power, which won the Women's Prize for Fiction. It's a book that talks about flipping over the established order, in this case replacing patriarchy with matriarchy, and maybe that's why her comfort blanket is the subversive Ealing comedy, Kind Hearts and Coronets. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming round. Well, it's my pleasure. We're going to talk about Kind Hearts and Coronets. We are. All I ever want to talk about is <laughs> Kind Hearts and Coronets. Now, I'm aware some people come on to Comfort Blanket and say, this is my Comfort Blanket, I've seen it twice. Mm-hmm. And I get the feeling this is mm-hmm. not the case with no, you and Kind Hearts no, and Coronets. No, no, I reckon I have seen Kind Hearts and Coronets at least 40 times, possibly <laughs> 50 or 60 yeah I've watched that film a lot and I don't know if you ever did this as a child did you ever like watch something and then immediately watch it again oh yeah sometimes yeah so I certainly went through a phase of that with this film and with a few other things was this a film you had on uh, taped off the telly or on VHS or something I'm sure we taped it off the telly I'm also sure that my dad showed it to me when I was much too young to really understand it. Although you can't be scared by it as a child. No. It's not one of those kind of traumatic... But it might bore a child. No. It's a black and white old-fashioned film. You might think, I won't show this to a kid in case they just yawn yeah. and ruin my favourite film. Ah, oh, right. But <laughs> I definitely saw it before I understood the whole plot. Yes. And I know this because our, this film is the first time that I can remember myself thinking as a writer. Right. Which is to say, I remember lying in the bed in my grandma's house when I stayed over there as a small child, so like seven or eight years old, 
we're going to spoil the whole film, right? So uh, at the end of the film, the killer, Louis Dascoy-Mazzini, is leaving prison. Yes. And somebody comes up to him and says... I represent the magazine Titbits, by whom I'm commissioned to approach you for the publication rights of your memoirs. And he thinks, my memoir! And then the last shot is the memoir that he's just written of all of his killings lying on the table. full confession. Yeah. My memoir. lying in bed as a small child thinking but I don't want him to get caught and imagining for myself a series of scenes in which he manages to get back into the prison to retrieve the memoir and destroy it before it it gets published because I wanted him so much to escape and that is the my earliest memory of going I like this story I don't like how it ended. I want to fix it. I want that story to be my story now. And, yeah, that's how you're a writer, really. I was talking to someone about this, about the enormous nobility of fan fiction. Mm. And why fan fiction is something you should take very seriously, because a lot of the things that you really like, and certainly you've grown up with, were probably fan fiction. Everyone does it. I said it's like being in a band. You start doing cover versions first. And I was talking to John Higgs about this and his theory about Doctor Who, Mm -hmm. Doctor Who being a meme that creates more Doctor Who writers, Mm -hmm. and it does it by having cliffhangers. (laughs) So you go to the playground and you talk to your best friend, what do you think is going to happen next week? And the answer is, someone will have screamed and it turns out to not be a problem. Execute them. No, no, hold it, hold it, hold it. This must be a case of mistaken identity. But you will think all week, how can they get out of the cliffhanger? How can they escape from the monster or whatever? So you start writing. And all you need to do to let someone get into the idea of fan fiction is to leave something slightly inconclusive. Right. And it's amazing because this film definitely ends in a satisfying way, but it also ends with a cliffhanger. Correct, yes. And you are meant to morally (laughs) think, well, he will be punished for his crimes because we've left you with that shot of the manuscript. My memoir. But I was reading this morning that apparently in America they made them add another ending to it (gasps) to explain that he did get justice. So the Americans wanted to what write fan fiction wrong with people? but they wanted a finished <laughs> ending whereas what you need to do is leave it open because that mm-hmm. then creates you because right. you then go on and finish the story and it's an incredibly generous film like a lot of the Ealing films are for letting you finish some of the story yourself mm. that level of audience flattering but you have to finish this yeah. yourself yeah there is at least one very good joke that I did not understand until my 40s <laughs> <laughs> Is it one of the sexy ones? Yes, There's a lot is. of sexy yes, jokes. there are a lot of sexy jokes. I'll tell you which one it is. All right. So how 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 old were you when you realised that Louis had definitely slept with Sibella the night before her wedding? It only makes it worse. I always told you you should marry me. I know. It makes it worse too. It's sort of left for you to guess. I mean, he says to Lionel, at Lionel and Sibella's wedding, you're a lucky man, Lionel. Take my word for it. You're a lucky man, Lionel. Take my word for it. He, they, and the That's last amazing. scene was them snogging. Yes. Right, so they kiss. Next morning wedding. You're a lucky man, Lionel. Take, Take my, my word, word for, for it. it. Because I shagged her all last night. You look more lovely today than I've ever seen you. And that's a perfect joke. It's left there for you to finish off. And it's also a perfect character joke because the whole point, what you're watching, why this is an enjoyable film... What the central joke is, he is amoral. Yes. So if there's any moral decision, he will take the one that is selfishly right for him mm-hmm. and wrong for him. He's hungry, rapacious. He consumes the people near him. So obviously he will eat her and have no compunction or regret about I it. Mean, I mean, she's the same. Of course, Edith is only a Dasco and by marriage. 
so I suppose her prospects are better. Except for a miracle. Like the other one we were talking about. Maybe it's harder to read how sensational it would have been at the time. Is the amorality of it at a time when films were meant to be moral. Right. The fact that it approves of and asks you to root for a murderer, that he is he is just ambitious and there's no... What you'd expect is some kind of moral... The only moral judgment is at the end where you think he might get punished for mm-hmm. what he's done. But you don't see yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I apparently, <laughs> from the age of seven, was like, I'm not tolerating that. Yeah. I'm not tolerating him getting punished for this, which everything that he did was clearly correct. Because he's too entertaining. He's, he, he, he wins you over by being... I mean, this he, is the fun way to be. He is entertaining, but also... The, the, the Dascoyne family are awful. Yes. And they're awful in a lot of different ways and you're introduced to some of them and at no point in that film do you think, oh no, this is terribly unjust. No. You think to yourself, yeah, yeah, kill them one by one. I mean, maybe that's just me. You'll be the sixth Dascoyne that I've killed. You want to know why? In return for what the Dascoynes did to my mother. I was thinking, what is... <laughs> Because, you know, there have been attempts to do modern versions of this, and there's um, an American musical, which, like many American versions of British things, is a little bit on the nose. Yeah. But I thought, what is the most modern version of this story? It's Heather's. It is. Yeah. Dear Diary, I want to kill, and you have to believe it's for more than just selfish reasons, more than just a spoke in my menstrual cycle. You have to believe me. Uh, I was <laughs> thinking recently I'd probably bring that on as comfort blanket. I just love yeah, Heather's. Heather's is great. I, mean, I watched we, it again recently. Yeah. It's still really good. It's really it's good. Still. It's really good. Oh, Christ, I can't explain it, but I'm allowed an understanding that my parents and these Remington University assholes have chosen to ignore. I understand that I must stop Heather. At no point do you think to yourself, oh, my God, what Heather doesn't deserve this. You go, oh, no. I mean, she's awful, and the only way to get rid of her is to kill her. Now, obviously, you step back from the film, and I haven't ever killed anybody. No. And nor am I intending to. But I've definitely killed a lot of people in fiction. Dear Diary, my teen angst bullshit has a body count. The upshot was that I was dismissed on the spot. I decided to repay him in kind by dismissing him with equal suddenness from this world. I was about to say, this reminds me of one of the things, obviously you're a video gamesy person. I am. One of the things that's really hard in video games is the easiest thing, the easiest mechanism to use in video games is a target practice. It's a shooting gallery. It's a really easy mechanism. Mm-hmm. The, the shooter works. The next question is, who are you shooting? And the answer is, it's got to be someone you don't feel morally bad about shooting, because otherwise it's the difference between a zombie game and Call of Duty or mm-hmm. Grand Theft Auto. One of them is morally difficult or plays with the idea of moral difficulty, and one of them is just fun. And the first thing you need is a load of zombies or robots, or mm-hmm. someone needs to say, these aren't real, they're just targets. It's yeah. just a shooting gallery. And there's a lovely way in which this film and Heather's, they'll set up by setting up a social situation where these people deserve to die. And the audience has a moral judgment. You go, I hate these people. Hate them. Right, I want them mowed down. They're zombies. I want you to put targets on them and I want to enjoy them going down. And then it has the morality of a cartoon. Right. And that means you can enjoy it. I swore to have my revenge on your intolerable pride. That revenge I am just about to complete. There is a quality to this, and obviously I am a video game, video games designer. There is a quality to Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is 
like a video game. <laughs> it, you have a, there's a tree of achievements, there's and a you've boss got a battle. right. There's a boss battle at the end. You know, it's quite clear that you are mad. Like finally, somebody who's able to name what they're seeing. Yeah. It's pers- you, you go through from the easiest levels. You've got to learn some skills. Yeah. You know, it gets up, but you can see how your achievements are racking up. At a certain point, it looks like the achievements have gone back. Oh no, there's two and two children born. Yeah. Yeah. On the back of his portrait mm-hmm. of his family estate that he's trying to win back. Yeah is a map that looks like a video game skill yes, it, tree. Yes, it does. And you're crossing off your yeah. baddies one at a time. It's Mortal Kombat. You've right. got to move up. Sonia wins. I imagine it's quite an easy thing for a kid to understand. It's, it, mm. it feels like a game. I think the and it's reason, played yeah, as a game. It is played as a game. The other thing, as a small child, before you understand why exactly it would be important that Sibella has found this note from Lionel, yeah. before all of that, you're looking forward every time to a new character played by Alec Guinness. Hoskins is now going to thrash you. Then he'll let you go. Let this be a lesson to you not to poach on my land. Yes. Because each one is different. You're just excited to see it. Of course, Alec Guinness, in real life, had a question about his parentage. He, oh. His dad, he never really knew who his dad was. He always suspected that it was a, I think, a minor... Darth Vader. Oh, no, it's no, 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 a very complicated story. Hang on, I can't work that out. Hang on, no, it's not. It's not Darth That's what your uncle told you. No, but in real life, I think it was a... He suspected it was a minor Scottish aristo. Oh. Uh, because that was the man who always paid his school fees. Uh, right. But he never found out exactly who it was, and there were more than one candidate. So you think, there's Alec Guinness absolutely sticking the knife in. Yeah. To those kinds of people who do not acknowledge the children in their family because the children didn't come in the right way. Because she married for love instead of for rank or money or land, they condemned her to a life of poverty and slavery in a world with which they had not equipped her to deal. We should probably talk about what the film's about. Should we? <laughs> no, I, I assume most comfort blanket, I assume everyone knows the thing we're talking about. Go and watch uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets. Yeah, do that and then come back. Yeah. But its central idea is that there is an aristocracy to which you can either gain entry through random, not through your skill or your artistry mm-hmm. or your Yeah, abilities. not through working up through the skill tree, no. not by proving it. You just get given it. The dukedom had been bestowed by Charles II on Colonel Henry Descoyne for services rendered to his majesty during his exile. Yeah. And it's about this, and it's examining this idea that basically if you are shut out of that for no reason, the Alec Guinness situation or the Dennis Price's character's reason, mm. you're shut out of it, suddenly the easy route, uh, easy mode, the cheap mode, the fast track ticket at Legoland yeah. is whipped from your hand for no reason because it's only by bloodlines. This is a random process that seems to elevate certain people to a higher caste and give them an easy ride. What relevance does this have to modern Britain? Yeah, I mean, God, it is still really good for that. But it's asked a question, what do these people do to deserve this incredible easy ride? Later, the services rendered to His Majesty after his restoration by the Duchess, the title was granted the unique privilege of descending by the female as well as the male line. And can I claim that for myself? And it relates to a questioning of that natural order mm. that happens after the Second World War. And yeah. you see it in all the Ealings, and you see it in, I want to go and see, um, I know where I'm going, the Powell and Pressburg oh, thing. great. Which, again, similarly just says, hang on, why are you guys in charge? And it is totally informed by the post-war settlement, the ousting of Churchill, mm-hmm. and saying, right, start again. When we are asked what is our policy, I can only tell you that... An enormous mass of work. And 1949 is a complete product of saying our betters might not be our betters. Right. They might just be us. 
And there's a lovely thing of he's Louis Mazzini. Yeah. So he's half Italian. We mm-hmm. can talk about that. So he comes from the wrong side. Yeah, of we his, are going to talk his, about that. He's yeah. foreign. Yeah. And then you go, well, he's trying to destroy the Dascoin family yeah. with that classic British name, Dascoin. <laughs> so you go, well, I'm assuming right. you're Norman. Yeah. That brilliant thing someone said that Britain is the only country that didn't overthrow its oppressor to the extent that when someone says, hello, I'm Louis Dascoin, you go, I assume you're in charge. <laughs> if you've got a French surname, I assume you're in charge because that's who owns everything. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. idea being that these people are not. They are the British aristocracy, but that name's a giveaway that they are as much an interloper as our well, royal family. And they probably <laughs> they probably got there by doing exactly, exactly what Louis Mazzini is doing, which is killing a bunch of people to get into that position. So in that sense, he is the much more rightful heir than anybody who's standing around going, oh no, I would never do anything like that. It draws a lovely line through. I like castles and things with boards on the wall. You can learn about how they got there. And I'm the person in my family who reads them and comes and says, would you believe who owned this? And the answer is always... It didn't get handed down a straight line. Mm-hmm. At some point, the royal family, that ruler you got as a kid that showed the royal family, yeah. is kinked all the way along. Mm-hmm. The line dies out and someone just swoops Yeah, this is how we got the Tudors. Yes. Yeah. It's all gangsters. And once you realise it's all gangsters, the lovely thing, I found out this morning, you know Martin Scorsese loves this film. Mm. And the voiceover narration for Goodfe- the voiceover narration for Goodfellas is inspired by <gasps> the fact that the voiceover narration runs all of this. It's a story of a gangster. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Oh my An life. Italian dr- gangster. That's fantastic. Isn't it good? Yeah. It's just this brilliant thing of just saying this guy turns up. All my life, I dreamed of being a duke. With so little time remaining to complete my story, it is difficult to choose where to begin it. Perhaps I should begin at the beginning. How does he get it? And he knocks huh? off one at a time. And you go, these guys are, they're hoodlums. Mm. It's, a, it's a crime family. Right. And they seized land and he wants it back. It's just brilliant. And at the point that you've actually met them, you go, oh, yeah, a lot of them are killers. In mm. one sense or another, not just his mum, but obviously there's the general who keeps retelling and retelling his story, which is a horrible story. Oh, and a about- disastrous South African campaign. Right. <laughs> <laughs> at that moment, the concealed enemy emerged from behind the copy. I held our guns fire until we could see the whites of their eyes. None of them are very nice. No. So you don't mind them. And they're all arseholes. Only Henry, the, yeah. the photographer. Yeah. The photographer is all right. But by that point, you're, you're in it. You're complicit. He made yeah. you go, yes, I want you to kill them. My method of approach proved an instantaneous success. Excuse me. Isn't that a Thornton Picard? Yes. Are you a photographer? Dabble in it. Got a Sanger Shepherd. A Sanger ship? Nice little camera, focal plane shutter, rapid rectilinear and all that. Look here, why not come up to my house and I'll show it to you? It's odd that the, the, the ones who are sort of the nicer, the softer mm. members of the, the aristocratic family are the ones who are regarded as ineffectual. So the fool who goes into the church yeah. is seen as a bit soft and the sort of the foolish son with his photography and things, you go, oh, they're foolish, they're ineffectual. The effectual ones are monsters. Used to get a lot of this stuff in the Crimea. One thing the Ruskies do really well. So the idea is the aristocracy values the people who are arseholes. Mm-hmm. So again, there's a value judgment on everybody and you want to see them knocked off one at a time. Not an atom of him was left. There's a lovely thing as well, which I'll just say just as, a, as an argument for it, as a piece of comedy. It lets you in to finish all the jokes. Mm. And there's nothing more fun than watching a comedy where you finish most of the jokes yourself. I've got the perfect example. What does... Agatha sound like. I know what Agatha sounds like. Alec Guinness doesn't have a single line as Agatha. He never says a thing. In my head, 
There was yeah. lots of a handbag. <laughs> he doesn't say a word. I know what she sounds like. There's so much space around the performances for you to finish the jokes. There was Lady Agatha Descoyne. Do you notice well they're kept at just enough distance, mm. partly to not give up the makeup that it's always Alec Guinness, but partly so you don't mind seeing them die. No. Because you don't see their eyes very often. They're often a long <laughs> way away. To That's the point great. like Agatha's in a balloon miles away. You don't feel the emotional weight of them dying because they're often kept in the frame in the middle distance. Right. Well, you sort of almost feel that they're already dead. I mean, yes. when you see that group of them in the family uh, pew in oh, the church. what a shot. Right. Apparently, in order to do this shot, they had to have everything set up overnight and the cameraman slept there to yeah. make sure that nothing moved. <laughs> Don't touch my camera. Don't touch anything. Do you know who that cameraman is? I no. love this. Douglas Slocum, cameraman on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh! Just astonishing cameraman. You know, you're introduced to them via this concept of they won't let the mother into the family vault. Yes. And essentially... They are the vaults oh, there. Yeah. They're the p- images they're like of statues. themselves. Yes, yeah, like, like statues. Right. Something. Maybe that's another thing that makes it... This is engineered to make you complicit in murder mm. and to enjoy the murder. And one of the things as well, let's talk video games again. One person plays them all, so he has many lives. <laughs> so you kill him <laughs> and another Alec Guinness pops up. he just up. keeps on It's whack-a-mole. Up, yeah. you can get, as in, he's unkillable, which is how the aristocracy feels. They feel unkillable. Yeah. There's always another one. They talk a lot about breeding. Dullest woman I ever met in my life. Plain true, but good breeding stock. Towards the end, the idea that there will be a new heir. It's like trying to stop vermin or rats. They keep coming in. Oh There's more God, and more. Oh, God, that thing where he <laughs> says, oh, the red poles litter a, a, a high proportion of boys. Good breeding stock, the red poles. And they litter a very high proportion of boys. And of course you can't stop them, because <laughs> if Louis takes over, do we think he would be better? Oh, no. No. He, he, I think what he reveals is they're all like that. Yeah. But at the same time, you don't get a feeling at the end of, oh, yes, this psychopath who's yeah, murdered yeah. a bunch of people <laughs> is going to usher in a wonderful new age for the people of Sprocket's Farm. Yeah. <laughs> it's got that sense of hopelessness. One of the things I think that makes it really British, and particularly a British Ealing post-war thing, is this feeling that you mustn't question the way things are. And yet the way things are is depicted as dreadful. We have that attitude to our aristocracy and our culture and our class system is that I we, know my place. It's on television all the time and we're allowed to watch it and we have to laugh at it, whether it's mm-hmm. Del Boy or or Steptoe and Son or anything. You go, you can't leave your class. That's the thing. And we see it on television and we go, oh, isn't that funny? And then we go out and we do nothing about it. When I was a draper's assistant and you were rich father's son, you showed me no kindness. Now our positions are reversed and you come whining to me for favours. Draper's assistant. That's right. Rotten little counter jumper, that's all you are. And the great thing about this wave of Ealing mm. around this time is that Britain, for its only time in its history, maybe a problem with the Peasants' Revolt, maybe the, the I don't know, the Reform Act. We yeah, the Civil War, cutting off Charles I's head. Yeah. I think the spirit yeah. of that we is in Kind have, Arts and Coronets. We have spasms of it where we go, could we try again? And the mm. answer is what happens is you go, and back to how it was. Yeah. This is in a beautiful period where someone said, they came back from the war and someone said, there might be David Kynaston or someone said this, they came back from the war and it was impossible to say that the class system was rigid because people had fought alongside different classes. Yeah. The armed services themselves have fostered a new awareness among their members that the country they have saved from defeat 
belongs to all the British people. It's really hard to come back and say, back to your slots. Mm. It had mixed up men and women, different races, different backgrounds. We'd all fought together, a whole world had fought together, and you came back and you went, right, those slots look stupid. This is our country. And if there is injustice, inequality, it's our fault for allowing it. And you see it in all the cinema of this period. I know where I'm going and I know who's going to one of the things that gets questioned is the people who did very, very well out of the war are questioned. That's what I know where I'm going about. <laughs> Do you, John Webster, take consolidated chemical industries to be your lawful wedded husband? I do. That's what the third man is about. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? There are people who did very well out of the thing we all went through. If I offered you £20,000 for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spend? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. And maybe we should pull them down off their pedestals. Yeah. There's a huge amount of rage in this it's film. Angry. It is. It's the most delicious British... Well, you know, revenge is a dish best served cold, which we learn from this film. Time had brought me revenge on Lionel. And as the Italian proverb says, revenge is a dish which people of taste prefer to eat cold. Ah, oh, yes, I understand. These are the people who had fought for this country, coming back to the country and seeing that there are still these people in their stately homes and the rest of us, yeah. you know, running around trying to serve them or getting the scraps from whatever they've done and just going, I want to kill you all. Yes. I just want you all to be dead. I want to live in your house. I want to have somebody else running whatever you're running. Some of you may be nice people, but that's not the point. Yeah. I just want to kill you. It's clear that you are insane. Give me that gun at once. No. There's a sense of you don't deserve this. Mm. From here, I think the wound should look consistent with the story that I shall tell. And there's a lovely... One of the, the running ironies in this, which I think is so beautifully played, is that the consequences, if he doesn't get this, he constantly frames it as utterly insupportable <laughs> that he should have to do a day's work. What he's saying to the audience, who all have to do a day's work, is that your lives are unimaginable. To this class of person, that would be like cutting their legs off. I demand to be indolent. <laughs> Louis, we must think very carefully about your future. Well, it should be quite easy to get a job. Not a job, dear. A career. And you say this to a, 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 an audience who have worked really hard and have finished a war and then have gone back to work in austerity, are struggling, are really glad to have jobs. And he says, oh, we don't want them. We're above that. I had hoped for Cambridge for you. The Descoins always go to Trinity. And then perhaps the diplomatic. But I'm afraid it's no use looking as high as that. I mean, it is interesting to think about what is it that he wants and why does he want it? Well, unlike most characters in most films, he tells us up front, yeah. I want to be the Duke of Chalfont and I want it because they have insulted my mother. Yeah. And then you step back from it a bit and go, you really want that more than... I mean, he proves it, right? He definitely yeah. does want it. But you really want that more than you want to be married to this interesting woman or to love. be... Love. Love, right. Money, yeah. success, adoration. The, the cold ambition of it is hilarious. Mm. Sibella? Yes, Sibella was pretty enough in her suburban way. And indeed, there was no reason why we shouldn't continue to meet on friendly terms. But her face would have looked rather out of place under a coronet. I made a note about this because it's something I'm obsessed by at the moment. Why isn't this a drama? Why is this a comedy? 
because if you watch it, you go, it's not full of like, it's not full of gag lines or anything. It's not full of pratfalls. It's not full of slapstick. It's very dry, very literary, very clever, very witty. Why it's a comedy is he tells you. Mm. A drama, it would be left as a mystery. You wouldn't know what his motive was. It would be a little bit more. The reason it's enjoyable to watch is you, the audience, are given that narration. You are given the confession from the beginning. You know who the murderer is. There's no mystery. So mm-hmm. you can lean into it and go, oh, I know this guy. And you can watch him. <laughs> Your villain is right in the middle. And it's the funny bits of Richard III. It's straight down the lens, tell you what he's doing. And you enjoy watching him do what he said he was going to do. Right. You're given all the information for you to enjoy predicting what he'll do Yes, next. he's never going to be changed by anything no. that happens in this film. This is why succession is a comedy. If you obscure motive, that's drama. If you reveal motive, that's comedy. Nice. He reveals all his motives and you get to go on the ride with him. Right. And there's something, <laughs> I, I like, sort of psychologically, I can see why that is. Because for all of us, actually, the most terrifying points of our lives, or some of the most terrifying points of our lives, are when we get what we wanted and then we go... Why did, why did I want this? Yes. You know, and you can have that with career success or, you know, getting into a particular relationship or it's even stressful. going... Right, going travelling and you go, you get to the place <laughs> and you go like, why did I come here? We've gone on holiday by mistake. And you sort of realise that you had expected things to somehow be different and you were... Like, you can get things and they, they're wonderful, but there's also a sort of self that comes into question at yeah. the point that you get it. This has not happened to Louis Mazzini. There's something really joyous in anyone who knows themselves. This is a character cut from comedy cloth. He will always behave like Louis and you can follow him being that guy. That's as enjoyable as watching Kramer from Seinfeld always be Kramer. Right. No hugging, no growing. No growing, no learning. And also, he's not hiding anything from you. He's not a mystery to you. Mm. Life is full of questions and mysteries and uncertainty. Comedy is comforting because it offers total certainty. I think one of the ways that the film makes us feel that the Dascoyne family are absolutely killable <laughs> is, is that we know Louis from the first moment of the film yes. and they keep getting taken in by him. Yeah. How are they so stupid? You watch them again and again and again. Even Edith, right? Sibella is the only one who figures it out. Yes. And she's not an aristo. Sibella and her brother Graham were my only close friends and we grew up together. In their case, Mama relaxed her objection to my associating with the local children. At least their father, Dr. Halwood, was a professional man. The rest of them, you know, they make themselves look colourable by being that thick. Which is obviously, the movie has set it up that way. They're colourable because they're gullible. Oh, nice. You're watching someone do uh, a confidence trick. And also you're watching someone do a thing which is a dangerous thing that I find exciting, which is pass. Yes. He's officially, in inverted commas, not from their class, but he passes. And oh my God, don't we love someone who passes. I therefore assume the garb and character of a colonial bishop spending his vacation making a collection of brass rubbings from country churches. Don't we love Roger Moore? Mm. Inventing the idea of Roger Moore. Someone told me recently that Hugh Bonneville went to a comp. I went, yes, go! (laughs) Get in there, take the abbey and run! Run, Forrest, run! run. It's watching someone loot something. It's what Mm. people were... People I know, I didn't enjoy Saltburn, but people who did enjoy Saltburn are enjoying that idea of someone breaking in and doing the talented Mr Ripley, breaking in, Mm. pretending to be part of something which you don't respect and just trashing the place. This is the reason you want Tom Ripley to succeed as well. Yeah. Because you look at, you you obviously know what we do in the shadows. Yeah. And there's a point in one of the episodes of what we do in the shadows where Colin Robinson, yeah. so when, he's, when he's dating the woman who's also an energy vampire, and he calls them mind cattle. We suck <laughs> from the mind cattle yeah. around us. And you go, yeah, 
you, these are the catfishes amongst the other fish that, you know, keep the other fish healthy or you yeah, know, yeah. keep them moving. The thing with motion smoothing that you have to remember is you want it on for sporting events. Dude, you're, you're blocking kickoff. Well, better to not watch the game at all than to watch in the wrong format, right? Colin, enough! Well, you go, yeah, to Louis, all the Dascoins are mind cattle. Why does oh. he even want to be part of that? Except he just wants to take everything that they have. It's a flipping of things, as in he's treating them like they treat people of a lower class, mm. an undistinguished mass. And there's something exciting. That's very these, good. Yeah. These people have got, they've got that great big, the first thing he shows you is that uh, family tree that he cuts the bit off. <laughs> that's his scorecard he can cut them yeah. off from. And that family tree is a, is a list of undistinguishable aristocrats in a rolling line. Mm-hmm. Again, our target. all played by the same person. So they've all got the same face. The joke yeah. about inbreeding is they've all got the same mm-hmm. face. And... The idea being that they are undistinguished cattle to him. It's a breeding program to to hold on to power. Mm-hmm. But to him, there's no difference between any of them. They might all as well be one person. He can't tell the difference between them in the same way as when they go to a shop, they can't tell the difference between the masses there. Right. These London shops are so far behind Paris. Parcel them up quickly and we'll take them with us. Charge them to my account. Yes, sir. What is the name? Mr. Ascoin Dascoin. The people who work in your shops and factories and banks are just... Meat, right. meat in and the it's room. almost a test every time he turns up. Not Agatha, because he shoots her with an arrow, <laughs> fine. But it, there's some kind of test every time. So he's almost, certainly with the first guy that he kills, the son who's there in the shop and he gets him fired. Yes. And then he goes and spends uh, a weekend at Maidenhead waiting for them to come out of their room. And had he recognised him as the shop assistant, yes. he would not have been able to do that murder. He says it in the narration. Yeah. He says he wouldn't have spotted me because out of my shop, mm-hmm. I am nobody. Right. It was possible they might remember me, but I thought it unlikely. Shop assistants being commonly regarded as an inferior race will never emerge from the other side of the counter. Right. So each time it's a, are you somebody who can look at me and go, I've recognised you? And yeah. if not, you deserve to die. Uh, but, I mean, even if you're, you know, the, the the vicar who cannot spot this man who is making up a language. Yeah. You speak, Matabele, yourself. Not as an idiot. You know, just kind of doing pretty offensive these days, ums and ers, to be Matabele. It's a, a yeah. funny joke. <laughs> I'm afraid my Matabele is a little rusty. Well, it's funny. Partly it's funny because... Nobody but an idiot would be taken in by yes. it. So we're going to talk about the Jewishness of yes. this film. It it reminds me a lot of there's there's the the humour reminds me a lot of Saki. Yeah. And there's a Saki not, not Saki as in sarcasm, Saki the short story Saki writer. Saki the short story writer, H. H. Munro, who also had a rage against the British upper classes. Uh, Saki has a wonderful story called The Unrest Cure where his hero, Clovis, basically turns up at some people's house for a laugh and persuades them that the bishop is about to do a massacre of the Jews in the neighbourhood. And there, oh, it's a great story. It's great. Uh, Nobody but me can possibly adapt it into anything. So just if you're listening to this and you're thinking of it, step back. Don't touch it. Yeah, It's, it's wonderful. And the joke there, so people don't want to talk about it because it sounds like it's anti-Semitic to say yeah. the bit, but the joke is that these people are willing to be taken in yes. by the thought that the bishop is going to try and murder all the Jews in the neighbourhood. And it's the level of the vicar, and he is just willing to be taken in yeah. by this obvious lie. Uh, 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 this is a colloquial wrenching, of course. A 
most interesting. So the joke is about his racism. Yes. And how stupid you become when you are racist. And I always say that my west window has all the exuberance of Chaucer without happily any of the concomitant crudities of his period. It's about the blindness of the aristocracy and their confidence that no one will come and take this Mm. from them. And again, we're talking about 1947, 1948, 1949, around the time there is a seismic change in British culture where you say we might change the contract we might have to look after each other. Right. We might not just pass all the money upwards. Mm-hmm. We might not just say, you guys are unquestioningly in charge. And their blindness to this murder in their midst is yeah. that the thing we can just march on the castle. There are loads of us. And the joke with this is that they are blind to the fact there's any threat. They feel they are invulnerable as long as they keep breeding and keep claiming that this yeah. is all theirs by birthright. Interesting. Because, so it's Edwardian, right? So yeah. they're just about to go into the First World War. These are the donkeys. They're about right. to lead the lions. Oh, God, that's brutal when you think about that. Yeah, these are the people who will absolutely cock up yeah. and not be able... Yeah, I suppose it's it's Britain looking back and saying, so are we going to put you guys back in charge, bearing in mind what just happened? Mm. And the answer is, no, they, they've, they've lost yeah. the right to claim it. Right, right. The answer is, we're not going back to it like that. Essentially, your choices are, in this film, that the, the aristocracy are either these idiots who are, you know, inbred and are just, mm. just there somehow because their grandparents were, or... It's an interloper who yeah. is there because he's a psychopath. Yes. Yeah. What a lovely choice. Yes. <laughs> Do you want them in charge of the welfare state? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Also, there's a sort of interesting financial story going on in the background of this, which never comes quite into the foreground. But it's a little comment on how finances work in that there is, you know, the old Ascoin Dascoin who is running the bank. Yes. I've marked in red those asking for renewal. Aitchison, yes, and Carter, I suppose so. And there's Lionel constantly asking for his bills to be renewed. Yeah. And... That is a story about a financial crash. Just quietly, just quietly going on there is the who is making decisions about the finances? How are they making those decisions? Everybody seems to be saying, oh, well, what we need to do is find out from Louis. Oh, you're you're an old friend of his. Is is he trustworthy? Knowledge Limited, oh, no. Red Bank and Holland. You have a friend there, have you not? An acquaintance. I know Lionel Holland. Would you say that he's sound? 
I wouldn't say not, sir. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. And then whether or not Louis says, oh, yes, he's sound is the reason that those decisions are made. It's skewed completely towards people who've already got something who can mm-hmm. keep it. It's that. Str- it's very similar. Actually, you've got another film we did for Comfort Blanket. It, it's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. It has the same sense of going, hang on, money is a very different thing if you're in the middle or the bottom. Yeah. And it is the top where money is just there. You sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. And money will always be there. And we can always we can always uh, lend you some. Right. Lionel's desperation yeah. is because he's not Louis. You know, yeah. he hasn't got that birthright way in. Lionel's got to either work very hard or he's, you know, going to end up bankrupt and bankrupted by the man who has already slept with his wife the night before his wedding. Lionel's ass, isn't he? The weird thing is Lionel's yeah. a representation of the class of the audience mm-hmm. and the rest of it, you're watching sport. Yeah. You're watching people who are not of your class fighting over... Lionel and Sabella are us. So yeah. Sabella... Oh, can we talk about Sabella? Yes, She's please. Fantastic. <laughs> what a character. What a performance. Yes, fantastic. Joan Greenwood, isn't it? Joan Greenwood, husky voice, incredibly sexy. Oh, it's awful being a woman. Having to dance with a lot of dull men, laugh at their jokes while they're chilling on your feet. She's got the 1949 equivalent of vocal fry. She you know, all <laughs> the, the people from Made in Chelsea, yeah. like, it's too much effort to talk. Right. I was just thinking of all the fun we've had in this room. You and I and Graham. And Lionel. Yes. And Lionel. Right. It's so posh and indolent mm-hmm. and weirdly... Irresistible. All those days by the nursery fire. Oh, God. Every time she speaks, there's an intimacy between her and Louis. He avoids everybody else. He's got a cold barrier. Mm. They've all got cold barriers between each other. They've got that brittleness of boarding school and and we don't talk, we don't have any feelings. She is full of feelings. And yet she is prepared to shut them off as coldly as he is. Will you marry me? (laughs) Louis, of course not. Do get up. You may be half Italian, but even so, you do look silly playing stage lover like that. Well, here is the question. Does Sibella love Louis? Oh, or is she as cold and ambitious as he is? I don't think, when you ask yourself that question, I don't think the answer is, yes, she is in love with him. I think that she says it very specifically, that she wants to be the Duchess. Yeah. And does Louis love Edith? Surely, no. Well, you know, I became conscious that a second ambition had joined my first. My first was... That I should wear the coronet of the Duke of Chalfont. And the second is... That Edith Tascoyne should wear that of the Duchess beside me. So, is that love? These are all business propositions. Mm. Why Sibella is amazing is that she is a match for Louis. Yes, she is. She's playing the same game. She's the only one who figures it out. Yeah. And every one of them a Tascoyne. And Edith absolutely still thinks that he has the tenderest, purest feelings. I wanted to publish irrevocably before the whole world. My faith in his innocence. Sibella and Louis should be in a car like Bonnie and Clyde. They should (laughs) go on a spree. As in, they are both bank robbers. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the way that cinema works, I'm mistaking that for love. Maybe neither of them are actually capable of love. Yeah, Yeah. so so (laughs) Sibella, like Louis, is a climber. She's just not quite as psychopathic about it as he is. But by the end, okay. This, this is a real question. You can watch the film again and ask yourself this question. Does Sibella kill Lionel? Because she's figured out what Louis's done and she goes, that's how you get what you want. Of course, Edith is only a Dascoin by marriage. So I suppose her prospects are better. Except for a miracle. Like the other one we were talking about. 
It certainly doesn't shut off that possibility. That was it. I watched it thinking, because Lionel's suddenly dead, and mm-hmm. there's a suicide, and suddenly a suicide note. A suicide conven- note is found. Conveniently, at her mm-hmm. discretion. Yeah, and she is the one who can say, I found it, this is his handwriting. It's just left there. So there it was. She would find the suicide note. If I, in return, would murder Edith. Because the rules are, there are no rules. These people will do anything. Right, nobody else is allowed to remake this film from the perspective of Sabella. Thank no, you. No, no, I'm no. going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but that option is there. The reason you're enjoying them sparring together is because they're a perfect match, the perfect organism bred by this system to win it. You're a clever little thing, Sabella, but not quite clever enough. What do you mean? I mean that not only do I know that you're blackmailing me, an ugly word, but the only appropriate one, but I also know that you're bluffing me. Call my bluff and see. I will. There are people who do very well by not caring about their own or other people's feelings. Mm-hmm. And this is a film that says they are the products of the British system. Right. And another thing that happens in the British system, people who are trusting end up trusting the wrong people. So let's, let's talk about Valerie Hobson, who plays Edith. Yes. Was married to John Profumo. Really? I believe so, Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> so if you want to talk about people who end up trusting the wrong people yeah, and who might choose a husband who then subsequently comes to uh, be revealed to have not been quite the person that he said he was. Are you aware that Lord Astor denies any impropriety in his acquaintanceship with you? Well, he would, wouldn't he? <laughs> what this film is about is if you've got a system by which people have a code of behaviour that they have to be a certain sort of person, either connected by a family tree, by a name, by a face. If you've got Alec Guinness's face, you're okay. Or by codes of manners or expectation, then you can be taken advantage of because mm-hmm. anyone can turn up dressed in the right costume with the right manners and they can take you. Yeah. And what is about to happen in the 50s and 60s is we're about to shake the system down with the Cambridge spy scandals, with Profumo, with the fact that we suddenly reveal that things like Suez, we're about to find out those people in the nice hats with the impeccable accents and the right schooling, were actually, they were just wearing those clothes. They would look like children dressed up as grown-ups. Mm-hmm. And the 40s into the 50s, into the 60s, is strangely Britain growing up and going, actually, our mum and dad are, I don't know respect for mum and dad anymore. We've, hang on, hang on, you guys, you're just dressed as grown-ups. Mm. And actually, we, we can see... You're just wearing the hats. You've got the right voices. Yes. You've learned the BBC accent oh. or the aristocratic vowels. And because of that, someone can pass, get in and do damage within that system, which is what John le Carre is about. Right. This is very similar to the John le Carre thing. Right. He's Bill Hayden. Until the mid-50s, I still had hopes, lingering loyalty to what we represented. Self-delusion, of course. You look the part, you talk the part, you've been to the right school, but you might actually be hiding behind that. Yeah. It's all a disguise. Yeah. And this this good chaps theory. Yeah. Uh, I mean, God knows, we live in a time when that good chaps theory has been tested to destruction now. It's good, isn't it? They were really good at getting things like masks and equipment, weren't they, the good chaps? They were brilliant mm. at that. They were really good. <laughs> lots, of, lots of good stuff came out of the good chaps theory. you think we would have learned. But yeah. <laughs> Surely there's an Ascoin Dascoin somewhere in the list of (laughs) suppliers. Yeah, the Dascoins did really well out oh of the pandemic. Oh, my God. Right, right, right. You know, they always resisted opening their home via the National Trust, except for those Tuesday afternoons. When, yeah. Well, that lovely moment where he goes round the stately home because he pays to go round. To pass in through that magnificent gateway, 
on visitor's day at a cost of sixpence was a humiliating experience, but I forced myself to undergo it. I wanted a closer view of the target at which I had determined to aim. This is around the birth of the National Trust, the idea that we are going to suddenly reopen as a tourist attraction mm. that leads via the rebranding of the royal family in the 60s to Downton Abbeyism. We are just going to sell abroad this beautiful myth of our brittle aristocracy, letting us in. The Death masses to wander around, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a mess. Yeah, in the, in so I haven't seen the musical, which is le, le, apparently legally they had they had to say the musical is based on the novel, which we will talk about, yes. and not on uh, the movie because of copyright things. I haven't seen the musical, but I've listened to the music. It's got uh, a song in it uh, by the elder Duke of Chalfont called "I Don't Understand the Poor." <laughs> and, <laughs> this is funny. It is funny. But I was thinking to myself, why is that? Why why would that never have been in Kind Hearts and Coronets? Yes, and partly I think it's Kind Hearts and Coronets is is a raging critique of a system which has created the individuals. So it doesn't really present you with this. I don't understand the poor, yeah. and somehow I mean. Louis Mancini also doesn't understand the poor. <laughs> yes, I think that's what's really clever about it. It's got in common with Pity Woodhouse. Mm. Is in your representative in there is someone equally privileged. Right. The, the narrator of Woodhouse is someone equally indolent and rich. But the, the poor are in the audience. Yeah. We paid our tickets to go and watch it. We are watching them fight. Like, what it is, it's the possibility of bum fights. <laughs> like, where the very, very rich might, or, or gladiatorial combat. You might pay, if you're an emperor, <laughs> to watch the poor fight. I want to watch the rich fight. I'm gonna, that's what succession is. I yeah. want to watch the rich rip good. each other apart for my entertainment. I'll sit yeah. outside it. I don't need to see me in this. I'm in the stalls. They can fight over there in the Thunderdome I've built for them. The black and white Thunderdome of healing. Mm-hmm. Let them fight there. The film was made by the producer, quite a famous producer, Michael Balcon. Yeah, the big healing dude. Yeah, big healing dude, Jewish. Actually came from roughly the same part of Latvia that uh, my family came from. Really? Yeah. I think when I first watched this film, before I understood a lot of the plot, all I knew was that Alec Guinness was going to be turning out. I, I just sort of... <laughs> I don't know. I've I've thought about it a lot over the years. So the film is based on a novel by Roy Horniman called Israel Rank. In Israel, actually, Israel Rank is not a bad novel. I've only read some of it, but but the the writing is quite funny. And that sort of tone is there. But in Israel Rank, the Louis Mazzini is half Jewish. So his dad, his dad is Jewish. So... I can totally understand why in 1949 you could not make this film with a Jewish lead character. And you probably couldn't make it today with a Jewish lead character because, frankly, there's still a lot of anti-Semitism in the world and the kinds of things that people believe about Jews are things like they're murderers. Yes. <laughs> so that would be bad. And, I yeah. mean, the, the name Israel Rank, it's a, oh, it's a good name, but it yeah. does stink of... Yes, it does stink of anti-Semitism. <laughs> I mean, but I think, I think there is something in this, which is, to me anyway, as a Jewish person, she says, is, is a sort of critique from a Jewish perspective of British society to say, what do you all think you're up to trying to keep us out? Yes. When... We're no different. In many ways, we are, you know, clever and interesting and we can do all the things that you do. And what is going on? And you also think to yourself, 
making this film in 1949. Many people in Britain only heard about the Holocaust four years earlier. And there, there is a Jewish producer going, let's make a film about... I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Just kill them feeling to it, which is, mm. uh, I think, you know, it's the revenge that is best served cold. And the coldest way is not to do it and just put it on film. Yeah. Which is just a rage against a society that won't let you in. It's right. about othering. It's about saying these people, and the, the joke with this, I suppose, is if he'd been from a recognisably different race mm. or even from a recognisably different class, you go, you're not allowed in because yeah. you can't speak English. Mm-hmm. You don't have the same accent. You mm-hmm. don't look the same. But the point is, Dennis Price looks like he could pass. Right. And the joke about anti-Semitism is it's, in inverted commas, invisible racism. Right, right, well, you look, you, look, you're not othered, but you're othered. There, there are many terrible jokes about the Holocaust, the, like the most hilarious of which is that Yiddish and German are almost the same language. <laughs> yes. You know, once you can speak one, you can definitely speak yeah, the other yeah. without much difference. And I think that feeling of you're insisting on these invisible differences yes. and it makes me so angry that i want to come in and just destroy you all and yeah. absolutely don't do it in real life i'm not suggesting yeah. that michael balcon wanted to do it in real life but but to just sort of play with the idea of i can talk about how angry this ridiculous othering has made me how murderously furious this, yeah, there's no reason, there's no justification. I wrote to the Duke, informing him of Mama's dying wish. His reply was the curtest possible refusal. Standing by Mama's poor little grave in that hideous suburban cemetery, I made an oath that I would revenge the wrongs her family had done her. I mean, it's interesting, of course, like, Italian and Jewish are often in cinema interchangeable. So Harvey Keitel, who yeah. always plays Italian gangsters, mm. is Jewish. No, what you're supposed to do is act like a fucking professional. I saw somebody saying this on Twitter once, I think, that there's a that there's a code that says Italians can play Jews and Jewish people can play Italians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and is that's it, allowed. It's Robert De Niro in Casino. He's, Ju- he's a Jewish... Yeah, I think He's a so. Jewish gangster on that, but you read it as Italian. Right. I don't give a shit who he's connected to. Tell him to take his fucking feet off the table. What do you think this is, a goddamn sawdust joint? I just realised as well, do you know how the line comes down to Dennis Price? On the mother's side. On the mother's side, which, which is, is how Judaism, Judaism passes. <laughs> so they yeah. why doesn't he fit him? It's a matrilineal system in Judaism. It almost codes it and says, look, we're still doing that. The title was granted the unique privilege of descending by the female as well as the male line. There's something to it, which is a bit like in the Borat films, when if you are a Jewish person watching Borat, you know that when Sacha Baron Cohen says that he's speaking whatever language Borat, he's speaking Hebrew consistently throughout. <laughs> Very nice, uh, a bit of Kazakh. Thank you for learning. And it's a sort of wink to the Jewish audience to go, it's okay, I know what I'm doing. I'm one of you. Like, we're making fun of them. We're not taking this seriously. And and there is something to the film which is to... I feel like, uh, maybe it's a reach, I don't know. I would accept that it's a reach, that I feel like it's speaking to Jewish people going, we understand that in 1949... You have just seen a bunch of your relatives killed. Yeah. And the, the, the idea that somebody had gone through and murdered systematically the whole of your family yeah. would not have been unrecognisable to Jewish people in Britain. And to say, we're going to do something 
playful with it, not talk about it, but in the not talking about it, somehow we are talking about it. There feels to me like there's something in there. I don't want to say that it's more of more than just a sort of faint hint. Even then I went so far as to examine the family tree and prune it to just the living members. But what could I do to hurt them? What could I take from them? Except, perhaps, their lives. That darkness and that blackness mm. of the humour that comes in around here, and this is definitely out of all the e-links, probably the one with the strongest vein of black humour in it, right. is definitely a function of what kind of a film can you make from 1946 onwards. Right. And you can't do that Hayes Code politeness anymore because there's been so much death. Mm. You can't. You can make Dead of Night, which obviously Michael Balcon oh, yep. and Robert Hamer directed the mirror sequence in Dead of Night. Ah. You can do all the horror in Dead of Night because are you going to infantilise the populace and say they can't deal with death and grief and trauma after what you just went through? It changes the rules of what you can present to a cinema audience because are you going to patronise them? They right. just went through something dreadful. They would and like it, to see some death and some anger and some rage and some fear and some trauma on screen. And it changes the needs of people from cinema. You know, du- during the Second World War, fine. People needed comedies and they needed something patriotic and something that made made them feel like heroes. But then afterwards, just sitting in the wreckage of Britain yeah. and Europe afterwards going, what just happened? We have just been through something so horrifying it's beyond comprehension. Yeah. But sometimes we have to make light of it and that's how Jewish people get through. The, yeah, the Lubitsch approach. The, right. The, 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 uh, to be or not to be approaches and you can make those jokes. Heil Heil myself. If someone wants to come through and be the Lord Chamberlain and censor say we can't say that, well, he's the Lord Chamberlain. He comes from above. He wasn't touched by this. Censorship is not what the people want tenderness and delicacy isn't what people want. They <laughs> want something that just says, we are going to joke about this. This mm. is gallows humour. This is trench humour. I mean, quite literally gallows humour yes, in this film. <laughs> the first joke is Miles Matheson talking about the rope. Oh. Oh. Even my lamented master, the great Mr. Berry himself, never had the privilege of hanging a duke. What a finale to a lifetime in the public service. Finale? Yes, I intend to retire. After using the silken rope, never again be content with hemp. Never again be content with hemp. (laughs) The idea that there's a brutality to the state's violence that has rituals to it. And you go, well, now I'm in that mode. We can be a bit nasty. Robert Hamer, who directed this, was a student of uh, Cavalcanti, the other great Ealing director who did Went the Day Well. Went the Day Well is the, <gasps> I mean, great. probably great. my favourite war Chocolada, film. that's a German word. Oh, God, the Continental <laughs> Sevens. That silly pepper pot. I'll do it. I never had any children myself. Mr Collins blamed me for it and I blamed him. And then he was taken. So we never found out. Went the Day Well features a beautiful chocolate box, picture postcard, postman Pat Village, fighting back against the Nazis and has the postmistress coming at the Nazi with an axe, really brutal mm. murders, summary executions, some really nasty stuff in it. Is it Thora Heard? Thora Heard with a, an Enfield rifle firing out the window. I shot one. Good girl. You know, we ought to keep a score. That's one for you. Half a minute now, I'll have a go. It's just, it's a sensational film, but it says we're past the point of politeness yeah. and manners and deference. We have had to find something in ourselves darker and more savage than we found before. 
Missed him. Can't even hit a sitting jury. I think that's what I'm saying. I think, you know, I'm not going to suggest that this is a directly a film about the Holocaust. <laughs> but I think I think it's a sort of things are thinkable now that weren't thinkable before. And not only that, things things become at this point necessary to think about and yeah. to sort of somehow remix in the way that comedy can just take something, stir it up and turn it into something different out of those same elements to go, we're going to replay this like a dream, replaying the events of the day yeah. in a different way, in a jumbled up way and go, we, we can turn this into something else. Like with the welfare state, we can make something new out of yeah. all that we've been through. Just before he died in 1963, Hamer wrote about the possibilities which making kind hearts and coronets opened up for him. Firstly, that of making a film not noticeably similar to any previously made in the English language. Secondly, that of using the English language, which I love, in a more varied and, to me, more interesting way than I had previously had the chance of doing in a film. That bit at the end where, where there's two women waiting in two carriages... <laughs> For him. It's so good. <laughs> well, who's? I mean, obviously, the film leaves you going. I'm not going to tell you which one he's getting in. Yeah. Uh, it, it's endless to think about that question. Who is he going home with? Who is he actually? How happy could I be with either a tother, dear charmer, away? I don't know who we're rooting for because his ambition doesn't lead him to Sibella, but the love that we sort of feel they might feel because they're a good pair isn't real either well somebody's gonna die aren't they yeah <laughs> like that's you know when you think it through oh uh, like suppose he does what i planned for him in my seven-year-old brain fan fiction back here. yeah fan yeah. fiction goes to get the manuscript manages to destroy the manuscript yep. before somebody reads it and then he's got these two coaches waiting for him if he gets in the coach with sabella sabella's gonna kill edith yep if he gets in the coach with Edith, he's going to have to kill Sabella. It's just, it's what's the next murder? Yeah. And you realise that neither of them neither is love. Of them is They're love. just murder. Right. It's somehow, <laughs> it's sort of sex versus good taste are the two. <laughs> you know, yeah. Edith is always going to be a really nice host for his dinner parties. And he's going to have a great time in the sack with Sabella. Take my word for it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And and he could pick either of those. I mean, if he leaves Sibella alive, she is eventually going to try and kill him. What do you think? One of the things that is an unsaid in this, Robert Hamer, who directed this, who was dead by 52, absolutely heroic alcoholic, like a right. serious drinker. Right, Dennis he, Price too. Well, the thing they've got in common, Dennis Price and Robert Hamer are both alcoholic, closeted homosexuals. Ah, oh, that I didn't know. And they're no. both, I mean... Uh, his, also his... makes sense because this is also about rage yeah. and feeling that the things that you have to conceal yeah. are, are... <sighs> He's passing. Right, passing. He's passing. And mm -hmm. he's going to have to make a marriage of convenience and he won't love any of those women. Mm. He's going to be forced to marry a woman, not out of love. And just... But his... Yeah, I think Robert Hamer's second wife or second partner said he would have been much happier living as a homosexual. And this is about... There's a thing in the in Dead of Night in the mirror sequence that he directed. <laughs> the idea being that when you look in the mirror, there's unrepressed, raging sexuality, but there's politeness outside. Mm -hmm. That feeling is very much in here, that there's no sex drive driving Dennis Price's character because he's only offered women. Yeah. He has no passion mm. for either of them, really. They're just very interesting, but they're just what he can get. Because he's never going to have his sex drive satisfied, mm. 
he has to put it somewhere else and he puts it into murder. Dennis Price and uh, Robert Hamer both were suffering terribly within a world that wouldn't let them express their passions properly. Hmm. But they had to live within a code that they didn't believe in and would never make them happy. Well, I have been writing since my first novel about the parallels between uh, Jewishness and, and gayness in terms of that experience of passing. Yeah. which is a rage-inducing experience. Look, there are plenty of benefits to not being subject to racism in the yeah. streets because of the colour of my skin. Having said that, I have sat in the back of a taxi whilst a driver was on the phone to his friend about, quite literally, how Hitler was right. <laughs> oh and, and, and I've that is the gift and the curse of passing, is that you get to find out how awful people really are because they don't know they should be concealing it in front of you. That's the message of this film, is that if you achieve the ultimate aim, which is to pass, you move into a society which you will thrive in and despise. Mm. And you are encouraged to believe that the only way to success, with it, certainly within the British system, is to pass. Mm. Selective education of any sort, uh, paying for your kids to join and have access to things. They're not your people, but that idea of passing, you go, wouldn't you rather be with your people? Ah, oh, yeah, but you'll have a horrible life there. Yeah. And that's what Dennis Price's character is doing in this. If he settled to the world of, I don't know, working in that bank or that shop, he'd get on with everybody. They're right. his people. Right. But he has to leave and pass somewhere amongst people he despises. Yeah. What he really wants is to be entirely alone. That, that's the <laughs> fantasy of being the Duke of Chalfont. Yeah. Is that then you don't have to talk to anybody else. Oh, my God, this is pure Elon Musk. You want to be on Mars. Right. I remember saying this to someone, so that you're, the, the, the progress within British class, even down to the level of things like classes in train carriages, is that if you're at the bottom, you have to share space. You have to do flat share. Mm -hmm. You have to live in small spaces. You have to go on buses. You have to share your space with other people. And slowly you move to detached houses and into cars and eventually to private jets. And the fantasy is you will win when you don't have to meet anybody. <laughs> And that is the British class system right. where you're one when you're the Queen. All the loneliness in those shots the in, in the crown. All the life and all the vigour is in meeting people and being around people. Mm -hmm. And actually the prize is, that's a prize for a very specific sort of person. Well, it also, <laughs> it makes you trust people less and less and less. So yeah. at the point that you have to go to a laundrette, I love laundrettes actually. Yeah. At the point that you have to go to a laundrette, you discover, oh, if I leave my washing here when I go to the loo at the laundrette, nothing happens. People look yeah. after it. You know, somebody else will go, oh, can I move this over there? And then, but, but the idea is we are all supposed to have a washing machine in our own houses. Yeah. You know, if you don't have... A lawnmower, and as my granny's generation, there would be one person on the street who had a lawnmower, and you went and borrowed it from them, and <laughs> yeah. you know, like they borrowed things from you in return. Then you discover that people are trustworthy, yeah. and the less that you have to trust people, the less trustworthy you believe that people are. You leave a world of having to share with people to an elite world where you live in a castle somewhere mm. on your own. The fantasy is to be as far away from people as possible. Right? Is that why the film is comforting? Because in the end, all the lives depicted in it are awful in yeah. different ways. And you come back to your own life and you go, oh, God, this is much better. Yes, you're right. It's why I find Succession enormously comforting. I didn't mm. realise, because as we said, Succession is a sitcom. Mm -hmm. It's um, a sitcom because no character changes. No character changes. They're, they're trapped in Act 1, Scene 1 of King Lear. And they will be trapped there until someone presses go and kills King yes. Lear right at the end. And it's a sealed bubble where I disapprove of everybody. Yeah. And so it's lovely. to. They're stuck in amber all the time. Right. They will always be in that setup. 
the great thing about those things is that this is a lovely comedy and very comforting to watch because it tells you what the rules are straight at the beginning. Everyone is appalling. You don't mind what happens to any of them. Mm -hmm. They are, and you watch it as an outsider and you judge them all. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in that, okay, well, now we're talking about succession, which we shouldn't be. But on the other hand, the theme of Kind Hearts and Coronets is succession. Yes. So I think we can. No, I, um, I, th I think they, they do work together. I think in terms of, of why does this work and why is it enjoyable? I think you're watching the elite fight at each other with rusty hooks. It's yeah. brilliant. Right. But <laughs> There's 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 a there's a thought which I'm going to just air, which is that there's something about succession which is slightly reactionary because it doesn't make you go destroy them all. It just makes you think they're all destroying each other and they're Leave all them. they're all having such a horrible time yeah. that I don't need to think about them because that life is awful. Whereas I think Kind Hearts and Coronets is I mean not that they're yeah. in competition. I'm just you know oh, no, it's interesting. thinking well Kind Hearts and Coronets I think is saying kill them kill them all. You yeah. can do it. <laughs> I, th I think what you, you've isolated something there that I think is really powerful in this is you can do a critique of the elite or you can even do a depiction of the elite. But I think what you do want to say alongside that is not, don't worry because they're having a miserable time. Because they're having a miserable time, but so are we. Yes. And the point being... So is everyone. What 19... They're having a miserable time in a castle. What 1948 and the new settlement, the new deal is about, and that happens, don't forget, it doesn't, doesn't happen in Britain, it happens all over. Mm -hmm. Keynesian economics are adopted all over the world. The idea is, what you say is, well, if they're having a miserable time with all the money, you might as well take the money off them. Yeah. And the great revolution that happened just before this film comes out, around the time that Ealing is making these great arguments for the triumph of the ordinary person... And that Powell and Pressburger are making the same arguments and uh, Frank Capra is making the same arguments. It's to say, if Mr. Burns is miserable with all the money, then maybe we should have some of Mr. Burns's money yeah. because there's no actual benefit in passing all the privilege upwards. Right. Which is basically 18th century revolutionary talk. <laughs> it's really dangerous. The guillotines come out mm -hmm. next. Mm -hmm. And I think the real joy of this film is it has got quite a Napoleonic era feeling of going, right, tumbrils. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very enjoyable yeah. if you are of that persuasion. Yeah, it's it's sort of literally a heist film <laughs> yeah. where you go, just make a plan and then take it from them. Just take it. And yeah, you could make exactly the same argument about the characters in succession where you go, they'll all be happier if you take all their money. Yeah, yeah. So just take it. Yeah, it's a really insidious thing right. to say. They would be happier in that detached house in Clapham. I mean, the yeah. detached house in Clapham it these days. It looks yeah. lovely. Oh, don't forget as well, the other, Robert Hamer has just come off making his Googie Withers uh, dramas all set in the East End. It always rains on Sunday. Raining. Always raining when it rains on Sunday. He did this stuff about the vibrant, real lives of people in small houses in the East mm. End. What was all that round your room last night? Cat came in through the window. Not the chair. Sounded more like an elephant. He's got a real sense of community and drama in small spaces when he shows you that lovely uh, little suburban street the pooterish street that they live in you go yeah that's he should stay there yeah it's interesting isn't it because now i'm thinking about it although i absolutely want louis mazzini to win at no point do i think that that film says to me oh the life of the duke of chalfont is lovely <laughs> Yeah. I d maybe I'm, am I wrong there? Like, I'm just thinking about what you see yeah. of the life of the Duke of Chalfont. Number one, obviously, they're all living through the murder of all their relatives, which is not that lovely. You want it because at the beginning, Louis told you he wanted it. Mm -hmm. And what he's done, because it's a comedy, he sets out the stakes. 
you have to. We are going to rob the bank. Right. You don't want it any more than you want to be a gangster yeah. when you're when you're um, watching Goodfellas. You yeah. go. This seems awful, and you're going to have to marry somebody that you don't yeah, yeah. like because she litters a high ratio of boys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible life, but he's he's told you he wants it. He's the hero. We like him. We mm. follow him. We want him to get what he wants. And the, the great joy of it, as you said at the end, the final choice is he won't get it. Or if he gets it, this this cycle of killing won't stop. Okay, it's a real gangster movie. It doesn't look like a great prize. Maybe that's why it's comforting. Hmm. It's because you know you will never get this. Yeah. Or if you want that, you'll have to have the terrible life of a killer or the terrible <laughs> life of an aristocrat. There's something comforting in watching the elite have a horrible time. White Lotus, mm-hmm. Triangle of Sadness, this 1% dramas and 1% comedies. You watch it and you go, oh, thank God I'm not there. Yeah, I think that, I think that's very true. I mean, there, I think there are some obvious things about it that are very comforting because, for example, repetition is comforting. Yeah. And that rhythm in the movie yeah. where you meet someone, he kills them. You meet someone else, he oh kills them. Oh, my God, it's, it's four murders and a funeral. It's right. got that lovely... Yeah, it's like it's people living a lifestyle I could never aspire to, doing the same thing again and again, again and again. again. It tells you at the start what's going to happen in the film, yeah. and then it does it. And then at the end, he's written a memoir of what has happened in the film. And what a brilliant choice. Thank you for bringing Kind Hearts and Coronets. Oh, my God. Thank you for letting me talk about it. <laughs> Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.